Blog Talk Radio. Okay, welcome to the Music Therapy Show with Jim Today's Friday, uh, August, what day is it, Megan? August 14th, 2015. <laughs> and uh, we are uh, flying by the seat of our pants today. We're, I have Dr. Megan Masco joining me for Journal Club. And Journal Club is... Uh, a reason for me to actually force myself and have a deadline to read the journal articles so that I'm that come through the uh, publications that are printed by or published by um, Oxford University Press for the American Music Therapy Association. We get these in our mailbox as members of AMTA. And um, I think it's important for us to keep up with current research. So this is how I do it. And Megan agreed to join me on this. Um, and we have a little bit of uh, stuff to work out because um, Megan is a journalist. So I just want to make sure that you're prepared to talk about the first one, Megan. Do you have it read? Which, which one is that? It's the one that starts with the, it has the systematic review of music-based interventions for procedural support. And uh, do disorders extend to musical messages and answer from children with hearing loss or autism spectrum disorders. And then Silverman article, the effects of lyric analysis interventions on treatment motivation and patients on a detoxification unit. Mm -hmm. And then there was the pot, pot fin mixed methods, expanding perspective therapy management in cancer care and then Walden's uh, music therapist research activity and utilization barriers, a survey of the membership. Do you remember back to that one? I do remember back to that one. Okay, cool. So Megan is sitting at her lake house or somewhere on a lake. I'm, I'm on, it's not my lake house. It's somebody else's lake house. They're just letting me be there. Hmm. Nice. So I'm sitting at my desk and she happens to have the next journal with her. So I'm going to provide the background information to, to, to refresh her memory as to which article we're talking about. And since uh, Eric Walden uh, spoke about the, or wrote about the um, music therapist research activity and utilization barriers, a survey of the membership. This is the last article in this episode, in this episode, in this uh, journal issue. And uh, I thought it spoke directly to here the journal club personally i like to think that he was writing about how well we're doing with this podcast in general uh and but he didn't name us specifically because I, I think he didn't want to appear biased right right but the article was about was studying it was reporting on uh, that studied how at membership of amta are using research and what activity research activities they are participating in and i like this one um because it really speaks to i guess the reason why i started this show uh, this particular series the journal club series um uh, well, it brings up some important points so go ahead megan Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say it does. It, it brought up a lot of important points about not only how is a membership 
using research and engaging in research, but how, what are, you know, importantly, what are some of those barriers? And I think that Journal Club, your idea for Journal Club, um, filled a really important niche there. And this came up at Music Therapy Research 2025 as well, and Annette White has closed book about this um, when she talked about NCR 2025. Is that sometimes, and I know I'm guilty of this too, you know, we get the journals and we look through them and we think, oh, you know, that's not my clinical population, or oh, that's not something I'm really interested in, or, you know, oh my gosh, I'm not an academician, I'm not going to be engaging in this kind of incredible, intensive research. So we kind of just let it go. And I, before you invited me to be a part of Journal Club, I, you know, I tended to do the same thing. I would slip up in the GMP or the MPP and be like, oh, well, none of these are my population. They're not about cancer care. They're not about hospice. And so I would just not read them. And, right. and there's some... I did the same thing out of my desk. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I have learned from doing Journal Club is that a specific article might not be about our population, but there's something to learn from it. Right. That's what I try to do with all of these articles, too. It's hard. Sometimes there's a real stretch. If you can open your mind that way, I think that, it, I mean, it improved my clinical skills um, and my oh, teaching yeah. skills, too, since I'm into that role this next semester. Yay! <laughs> so, a couple of things me in the discussion. So for this, I just read the abstract and then I read the discussion because that was all, I didn't care about his method necessarily because I wasn't going to try to replicate it. Um, but so I read the discussion and in the section on, the, so the discussion, if you'll remember, has several sections about each topic and it was research activity. Most of the membership is reading the, are reading the journals. That's the most frequently reported, but he said that it didn't, um, it did not specify what they were reading, doing an in-depth analysis or just looking at the titles of the articles or, or what. And then uh, the research conference session and, and uh, the survey didn't really specify what degree people that responded to the survey are attending the conference sections that are sessions that are mostly related to research. Um, and then in the conducting research section, this is the part that most clinicians are not doing. Um, really I'm not. And he asked this question, is there an element common to medical and rehabilitation settings that encourages research engagement to a different extent than other settings? And I've worked in medical and rehabilitation settings and a whole bunch of other and I will tell you in my, so this is a sample size of one, um, education settings and uh, in-home settings, they, they, research is not um, emphasized. I mean, everybody wants you to know the research, but nobody wants you to do it. They're not going to pay you it's a lot of reality issues and procedural problems with getting these research things done as a clinician. And so um, that's, I do think that that is a real um, deficit here. And, and he asks, how can, um, how can we encourage connection across settings and, um, say, and then you know, working working in in-home hospice you know those mm -hmm. people are so emotionally socially psychologically medically fragile it's really hard to convince an agency you know, to let you engage in research 
So, I, and I know I was really fortunate when I was a doctoral student that I worked for an agency that really wanted me to do that. And that was fabulous. I mean, it was so helpful, but most agencies not like that because the population with which we is so fragile. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to add to their distress. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And we're working with sick people and, and people that, can't make um, good decisions for themselves and and things like that. And who wants to? I would would much rather just do with them than study the. So I know that that studying and reporting about how the therapy is working and what it does and doesn't do is very important. But it's just hard to justify that in the moment with the individual. Yeah. And the next section section in the discussion was discussed research and so um, that was the part where he actually said uh, some of which are already in place like journal clubs and online groups and so I feel like that he was saying good job Janice right there without <laughs> uh, you know, use our names without our permission right <laughs> so uh, talking is important and then um, the utilization barriers and so he did this complicated uh, uh, analysis of the data to study these barriers and I didn't read the results or the methods section so I don't know how he did it but uh, and I don't really find that important to me personally how it but uh, he brought up some good points about the barriers to people consuming research and the ones that I felt were most um, significant were the the work setting um, making research uh, available or a priority in the organization that you're working um, and actually conducting research as a priority as opposed to just consuming the research as a priority and then the the accessibility and comprehension factors of research I say all the time like I feel like I'm a pretty I'm well educated and a person. some studies and things that are written in a style that makes it very hard to consume and process and I have a real problem often, with that. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. My, my husband, oh, often, I was just, my husband has a master's degree, but he'll often joke when I give him, like if I have him look at something to read before I turn it in, he'll, he'll look at me mm -hmm. and say, was that in English? You know, right. Like so yeah, you're absolutely right. And we that, use language that's sometimes really difficult for people to understand. Um, right. And I don't think jargon makes us sound any more intelligent. I think it just makes no sound snooty. <laughs> well, and so and I've been have to, oh, sorry, something else we have to think about too is that you were saying, you know, institutions, a lot of it is about your institution. Once you once clinicians are done being students and they leave the academic setting, they lose all their access to right. you know, the thousands and thousands of journals and not every music therapist publishes in a music therapy journal you know they we publish in other journals as well and and we need to so that other disciplines can learn about music therapy um but you know once you're done being a student or you're done working at a university you lose that access and so you don't you can't read the amount of research that you could before when you were a student Right, and I think that's where the conference session presentations and other podcasts like the um, Research Podcast 
come mm -hmm. in, and I wish that would happen more often, is synthesizing this research that's in other journals that I don't have access to. And I would yeah. love to be able to provide those sorts of journal clubs. I just don't have that kind of time. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a need there. And I know I've had problems speaking in a, at a level that my audience can understand. And I feel like I'm speaking at a level that is understandable, but maybe I'm using words that aren't as understandable because my, you know, perception is different than people's. So I've tried yeah. really hard things in that the majority of people can understand. And I think that's really important. I think the timing of that article was really fantastic given that we just had Music Therapy Research 2025, you know, we're going to start presenting on what happened at Music Therapy Research 2025 with this conference. You know, they're going to be, there's going to be a CMPE about it. So I was, I don't know if Dr. Rob and the editorial board did that on purpose, but it was very well timed. Excellent. So let's, we'll go back to the journal. The first article is, um, it was an invited feature article. Uh, it's called A Systematic Review of Music-Based Interventions for Procedural Support by Yinger and Gooding of the University of Kentucky. And um, th so this was, I think it was going to try to be um, a meta-analysis, but then the, the studies weren't um, able to be categorized in that way. So it was a so systematic yeah. review. Um, that examined randomized trial music interventions to manage patient-reported pain and or anxiety during medical procedures. Um, and as I, I read this one, I read the abstract and the discussion again, I believe. Uh, this, I think this is one of the reasons this journal was, was it had a ton. So I, I did read the tables because I found that interesting as well where the table described the music intervention and the strengths of the study and the limitations of the study. Um, there were so many limitations to the studies that were in this review that it's difficult to apply this research in practice. But what I took away from this article is that patient choice in the music seems to be important. And I plan to attempt to use music next time my son needs an immunization. I've tried it in the past, mm -hmm. past and gone well, but he's older and uh, too, so I'm gonna try it again. Um, and I'm also teaching a class where one of the assignments is to complete a systematic literature review. So I might refer to this one as an example of that. Yeah, and I think the, the really big take home point is that it has to be, it needs to be patient preferred music. Mm -hmm. it, we need to give our clients, our patients, whatever we're going to call them, they're usually patients in the hospital. We need to give right. them the option to choose the music themselves because then, of course, then they get to exercise and control. We give them a little bit more control over their environment, which is really important when you're in the medical setting and you feel very out of control. Um, and, right. and from previous research, it's been highly suggested that when the people physiologically respond differently to music they prefer than to music they 
that somebody else just, you know, chose to play. And I have actually, I've, I've actually had really well-intentioned doctors who have said, oh, I'm going to play music during, during your procedure because, you know, I read a study and I know you're a music therapist and it would make you feel better. And I was like, no, I hate this music, just turn it off. Yeah. Oh, in my own music too, uh, dental cleanings and things. Oh yeah. Cause always I can't stand the music that they play in the background. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that was important from this one is that the research needs to better define medicine versus therapy where he actually has a board certified music therapist and a therapeutic relationship with a human. And music medicine would be those like nurses and doctors that provide the iPods or the background music or things like that. So there is a big difference between the two and the research tends to music therapy across the actually is. And so we need to do a better job of educating other researchers and other disciplines about the difference so that the terminology, it gets less confusing. And Yoka Brat had a mixed method study come out very recently looking, comparing music medicine and music therapy. And it was pretty clear that music therapy, music medicine helps people, but music therapy helps them more. Mm. Oh, I'd be interested to see that one. Um, okay, the next article is uh, do communication to musical messages, an answer from children with hearing loss or autism spectrum disorders. And this was done by Wibulka Feller, Driscoll, Olison, and McGregor. And it looks like they're all from the University of Iowa. Fashion. Hmm? And um, I know, I know a few of them. I don't know all of them. I know most of them. All right. So this study was interesting to me. I like the musical examples um, that were printed. Um, it was actual music showed the like a few bars considered to be happy music and sad music, and then skip skipping and running. So this study compared uh, how people with cochlear implants and how people with autism. Um, heard musical examples and they interpret music to her emotion and then uh, they did it again to see how they understood music expressing movement. And so I like these musical examples that helped me to understand how the study was conducted. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with your implant, but uh, this is good information if you do work with that population. I do have a lot of experience with autism, and I have a particular client that um, I see that some of these methods described in this study might be helpful because the client, um, particular that is identifying emotionizing with other people, and so I'm gonna um, see if some of the information from this study can help um, in the treatment of that client. And uh, there's a nice table that shows um, the, what the uh, qualities of, of, the, of musical structure are considered um, happy or sad or angry or disgusting or fearful or, and then what was used in the research study. So like the tempo and the mode and, the, and um, some of the 
particular gestures like legato or things like that. So that makes it helpful for me to be able to try out some of these concepts in a session. Megan, or do you want to this one? Here, sorry, you're breaking up just a little bit. Sorry, I hope everybody's able to hear this okay. We're trying well, out some new gonna, technology. I know, I was gonna say too that, um, you know, when we work with, with people who have cochlear implants and, you know, Dr. Keller and Jimmy and, and company have published on this extensively, it is really interesting to see what parts of the musical signal transmit the most meaning for people. And, and one thing about this article that I really appreciated that you touched on and that came up again, I'm going to bring up Music Therapy Research 2025 again, is we really mm -hmm. need to, in our literature, we need to say more than music therapy. You know, I did a music therapy intervention. I did a songwriting intervention. I used a music assisted relaxation intervention. We have to really actively describe what it is that we did and if we can, based on copyright, if we can include musical examples, because like you were saying, that makes the article so much more useful. Yes. And I, I believe there's been um, something published by Sherry Robb and maybe some other people about how to explain what your research, because I've seen referenced a few times in this journal particularly, and I feel like the explanations have gotten much, much better. Yes, they have. All right. The next article is called Effects of Lyric Analysis Interventions on Treatment in Patients on a Dedication Unit as Effectiveness Study. And this is by Dr. Silverman at the University of Minnesota. So um, when I worked on a psychiatric unit uh, many years ago, I would look for studies like this one that would help out what kinds of things in this group setting term, uh, treatment where I didn't really have a whole lot of information on all of the, the participants. And um, there's been a lot more that's come out since those many years ago when I worked on that unit. And this study is the method used uh, well enough that, that I can adapt it to use on a psychiatric unit that I'll be working on this next year. And uh, the purpose of the study was to determine effective lyric analysis interventions on treatment motivation in patients on, on detoxification unit using a single session consign. The purpose was to determine if there were differences concerning two contrasting songs used for the analysis. So he described how he did the lyric analysis. Um, he did like the exact what I said. This is how I did it, but in the study, what he did well enough that I feel like I could adapt it for my use with my population. And uh, the conclusions were that although the the he compared songs that were different styles and uh, patterns on the guitar and things like that, and he said that the song used for the lyric analysis interventions did not affect the outcome but a single group-based music therapy lyric analysis session can be an effective psychosocial treatment intervention to enhance treatment motivation 
it's on a detention unit. Um, gives me some hope uh, that I hope to be able to express to the practicum students I'll be working with this semester that even though they're they're not seeing these patients for more than one or maybe two group sessions, they can still make a big difference in therapy uh, and the outcomes for the. And I think that's how most of us function, right, as music therapists. And I know I've been supervising students in inpatient psychiatry and behavioral health units for the last couple of years, and I did play for it myself. And most of the time what happens is we walk into the unit and they say, here's your group, and you maybe, if you're lucky, will have two minutes to learn a little bit about that group from the nurse or whoever happens to be you know, at the nursing station at that moment before you go in and you work with them. You go in and it's nice to know that you don't have to worry quite so much about, oh my gosh, I picked the wrong song, right? That's the thing my students are always so afraid of and it's always the thing I've always been so what if I Right. What if I choose the wrong song? Yeah. And um so I mean this was just songs and it was a a small study, but it was a, it was really cool to kind of gives you that boost of confidence that the song you choose it, it may not have the same effect or um, as the way that you present it. Okay. So I think that's good. All right, the last article to talk about today: expanding on music therapy for symptom management in cancer care. And this is by Poffin, Bratt, and Keslick at Drexel University. Um, this study explored patient experiences underlying symptoms and symptom management in care and examined the way in that clinical process. And uh, there were three themes that captured the element of the music therapy process uh, that was identified in this study. Relaxation, therapy, intrapersonal. Um, I should probably explain that this was a, um, a study of a mixed methods research that was, and they, they, they earlier, and they looked at the, the data again. Interviews to look at the in a different way and answer some different research questions. So these three themes, relaxation, therapeutic relationship, and interpersonal relating, capture the elements of the music therapy process that modify the participants' experiences of their symptoms and the depth of human that shaped their symptoms. Um, so I have supervised students on an infusion unit that sounds really similar to the one that's described. So I just this article, and this is the only one that I wrote article. Um, it describes the setting in a way that will help practicum students understand how the unit might work and what issues they might address. But I think the um, the method or or maybe the way that that they did the research a little bit for a student incompletely since they really to apply it to no experience to really apply this information to and um, he made the point that entry-level music therapists don't receive training in um, 
something. Well, he called it something, but like I do psychotherapy, deal with a person's emotions or expression of feelings. Um, and so I disagree with that his, his with his with the point that um, entry level music therapists don't training in me of the content that my questions ones described in the article. Um, I know that when I graduated, I probably didn't feel as competent in my call, but I have made some similar clinical decisions that as the one described by the music implemented the stuff that the students I'm trained would probably be competent in these areas as well. And I think that part of it is about experience. If you have, like, because we have students who are in the cancer unit on a regular basis every semester, at least one, at least one morning a week, we have students in the outpatient cancer unit and in the inpatient cancer unit. And it's a big learning experience for them. I think that, I think for mm -hmm. students who don't necessarily get that experience and not every school is going to be able to provide that opportunity for students. A lot of it depends on, you know, do you have right. a local hospital? How big is it? Does it have a cancer unit or do cancer patients go someplace else? Like, we don't have a pediatric cancer unit. We only have an adult cancer mm. unit because our pediatric patients go to a different city. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think if students don't get that hands-on experience and practicum, then the point is valid, sure. But for students right. who do get to have that hands-on experience, whether it's in an inpatient or an outpatient cancer unit, then they do get to learn more about this, and they do have those experiences. And it's so funny because I, I say to students all the time when they're getting ready for the cancer unit, I say two things you have to be prepared for. You have to know you are never going to know. That's the first thing. Just prepare yourself. You're never right. going to know enough breath. And something emotional or it's going to happen every single time that it's going to catch you off guard. And that's why I'm here to help you process it and learn from it. Right. And I also think that even, so I agree that not every school is located in a community um, that has all of these opportunities. And it's hard to build the relationships with these different places to allow the students to have these opportunities in some cases. All training the same because of how it works but don't you think that most people are graduating that with the skills to where they could learn on the job oh, to definitely. Uh, what these things yeah oh, so definitely. and that's I there's mean, that's a really the, the purpose I'm sorry go ahead right well, I mean, I agree that this needs to be a focus in the entry-level training, um, but I disagree that it is a huge deficit that come. I feel like many, at least many programs, all of the therapists that I have come into contact with have this ability. It's, I think that... Um I, I don't know that it's as much of a deficit as is, an, is, as is described in the article. Um, it might be that new professionals coming out don't feel as confident. And I, I remember being a new professional and working in hospice care and having done my internship in hospice care and having had several, you know, 
clinical rotations, practica in in behavioral health, and still feeling pretty green because you are. You know, it takes at least what is it? The orientation period for hospice at least is is 24 months. That's what the literature says. So you know, imagine it takes you mm-hmm. two years as a professional to really right. to like have your seeing. Right. Well, Megan, thank you once again for exploring the research with me and have our next scheduled. It's going to be in October, on the 9th of October. Um, Before that, I have a couple of shows scheduled um, in uh, September. I'll be working with the folks uh, the online therapy conference, the online conference for music therapists. Um, so join me for that. And actually, in August on the 28th, we'll have another mommy support group, parent support group show. And um, I'll have on November 23rd, I'll be talking with uh, Petra Lagasse and Marsha about. Autism Spectrum Disorder Strategic Priority. So that's, uh, I've been in the schedule this fall. So I'm looking forward to talking with you again. I hope you all have a good week. Megan, enjoy the lake. I'm so jealous. Thanks, Dan. And uh, <laughs> thank you all for listening. I would love to hear your feedback or your thoughts about these articles or about the research. So share them. Let me know your interactive search and whether you're listening show and uh, I'll talk to you again. You can contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net. Thank you for listening.